entering the Freedom Hut. Bernie Sanders doubles down on his support for the literacy program the Castro regime implemented. We'll get into that. The rise of open authoritarianism in the Democratic Party. What does this mean for the Democratic primary? There is a debate tonight among Democrats. It's going to help determine who wins in South Carolina and a whole lot more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. To the Democrats who say... You don't say good things about Fidel Castro. He uh, destroyed freedoms in that country. He played picks winners and losers and killed them and put them in prison forever. You don't give him a pat on the back for anything. You don't give it's not a quite truth is truth. All right. Now, if you want to disagree with me, if somebody wants to say that, and by the way, all of those Congress people that you mentioned just so happen to be supporting other candidates, just accidentally, no doubt, coincidentally. But, you know, the truth is the truth. And that's what happened in the first years of the Castro regime. Truth is truth, is the answer you get from Bernie Sanders there. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. You would think that Bernie Sanders might take the off-ramp here, that CNN was clearly clearly providing him, right, uh, that he could walk away from his comments about the literacy program. By the way, the literacy of the uh, Cuban people went from somewhere in the mid-70 percentile range to like maybe 90 percent, and that was at the cost of the enslavement of the entire island, the appropriation of not just rich people, but middle class people's property, indoctrination programs, mass detention, mass executions, torture, brutalization, and oh yes, huge numbers of people risking death as a Cuban immigrant to this country, now a proud American, had explained it to me, always remember that people were not just willing to risk their own lives, but fathers, mothers were willing to get on Rickety rafts, homemade, homemade rafts and risk the possibility of watching their children drown before them or their children get eaten by sharks. That's how desperate they were to get off of this island that Bernie Sanders thinks had a great literacy program. Now, we're not overstating this. This this is no longer that point in conservative media where you say, come on, is this is this meant to just get a rise out of people or is there a little bit of media exaggeration going on here? We have a socialist who is now on a glide path to becoming the Democrat nominee for the presidency. And not only does he not hide the fact that he's a socialist, he's quite open about it, obviously, but he won't even repudiate his previous warm comments about some of the most awful totalitarian regimes on the planet. And this guy wants to be in charge of the executive branch of the United States government in less than a year. I I think it's a big deal. I think we can all view this as something that is worthy of our attention and our time. And just remember this, as scary as it is, the Democrat corporate media, the CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, Industrial Complex... They'll they'll find some way to push Sanders on us. They they don't care. Anybody but Trump, anyone who they think will give them some of what they want, even if it means 
a complete abandonment of some of the core principles of this country for now, well, really since the beginning. I mean, if you look at individual rights and constitutional uh, constitutional restraint on government, and then you look at what the Sanders administration is already proposing to do, it's effectively at war with the founding principles of this country. It wants to turn us into a, oh, that's right, kind of like what Obama said, fundamentally transform the country. That was his promise, and now Sanders looks to finish, finish that process. This is troubling to say the least. It's something that we should take very seriously. We have to take it very seriously. Uh, Bernie Sanders also takes all the wrong lessons from history and from other models around the world. All of the wrong models. He, he somehow has managed to spend his entire adult life distilling the incorrect lessons of state control, authoritarianism, intervention by government authorities into markets. All the wrong lessons. That, that's really his, his magic power is to always he's like Joe Biden on foreign policy to always get it wrong. Bernie Sanders on the market and on what creates wealth and prosperity for all people always gets it wrong. All he knows how to do is class warfare agitation. He doesn't even know how to implement that class warfare agitation. You have to remember that. He hasn't even had experience at the controls. He's just the loud voice on the corner yelling about millionaires and billionaires and oligarchs. And you're going to have free this and free that. And they're all going to be paid for by the rich. Except we know everyone's going to pay for it. There aren't enough rich people to pay for the things that Bernie Sanders says that he wants. I've had a number of jobs in the private sector, and the people that I have worked for, or at least the owners of the companies I've worked for, they have been wealthy. I've never had a, I've never had a job that Bernie Sanders would offer me, right? I, I, I've never worked for somebody who Bernie Sanders would be able to do anything other than extract from. <laughs> so his, his demonization of the people that are actual job creators is counterproductive in the most clear and the most, the most evident ways. He, he simply does not care, though. He's going to continue with this. Um, and he also knows that he has to bow to the wokeness of the left, which I suppose is unsurprising. Uh, here's what he says about who is vice president, for example, will be play clip 10. But your question is about a, uh, a vice presidential um, uh, part of the ticket. Um, and yes, the answer is we will do that. Uh, but it's a little bit presumptuous right now. I will tell you one thing, though, uh, you know, is uh, that person will not be an old white guy. That I can say definitively. Right? Yes. In, in, in all seriousness that our cabinet and our administration will very intentionally look like America. I think it's important that all of our people see themselves reflected in the administration of the president of the United States, and we will absolutely do that. This from a guy who is really the oldest of white guys running for the presidency, from what is, I believe, the whitest single state in the United States. But now he's Mr. Diversity because he thinks he has to be in the Democratic primary. Um, so the media can go along with all this and look like they're not selling out whatever principles they pretend to have. How's he going to pay for all this? We'll figure it out. I mean, this has really become a common talking point on the left. 
How are you going to pay for $100 trillion? It'll come from somewhere. Keep in mind, right now, people might have to consider the possibility that we are facing because of, uh, because of manufacturing, manufacturing stoppages and supply chain shortages, a change in global GDP as a result of coronavirus. That's a, that's a real concern. I don't know if it will happen, but that's a real concern. And you also have $23 trillion or so of U.S. debt already piled up. There are economic ramifications that are happening all the time from that. And Bernie Sanders is just saying, let's just make it $100 trillion. I mean, he is he is walking into a, a room full of flammable material, and he's got a flamethrower in his hands, and he's just saying, what could go wrong? This is really something that we all have to take very seriously. I, I did not think if Joe Biden became president— you weren't going to have, a, you know, the massive destruction of wealth uh, that you would have under under a Sanders presidency. Let's understand this. I mean, Biden would have, you know, he would have done some bad Democrat things, and it wouldn't certainly wouldn't have been as good as Trump, nowhere near it. But you know, he'd sort of go with what the corporate interests and the Democrat donor class wants on some things. Bernie Sanders, it's not clear that the corporate donor class can control him at all. And it's also not clear that he even really understands the ramifications of what he says he wants to do. Uh, he's claiming, for example, that we'll just figure out how to pay for things when we decide that we're going to pay for them. Play 12, uh, Mark. There, there is a lot of detail in here. You can look for it for yourselves on the website. Um, it is not matching the price tag that some put at about $30 trillion for the Medicare for All transition. You do have lots of different ideas in here. I'm not saying you don't. Uh, but you get about halfway there. The question becomes, how do you get the rest of the way? Well, we get there. You know, there was a study, Chris. I don't know if you happen to see it. I don't know if anyone... $30 trillion over 10 years. How do you get there? The math doesn't add up. He can pretend that it adds up as much as he wants to. I mean, Bernie Sanders, in a saner era where the left has not had the ability to organize and galvanize via digital and social media and where the corporate media hasn't just become a bunch of absolutely spineless cowards who just don't want to be called, you know, don't want to be called racist, don't want to be called sexist. Uh, and, and we'll play along with this class warfare game. I mean, that's the funniest thing about about the CNN and MSNBC and ABC. Same deal that that these networks have all these people that go on TV who are multi multimillionaires getting paid to do a job that a thousand other people could replace them in tomorrow and do just as good of a job. But they're friends with the right people and they like their little privileged positions and they act like. Bernie Sanders is not crazy because their audience or a, a substantial portion of their audience now wants to believe that. So they'll just play along. I thought journalists are supposed to speak truth to power. I thought, especially if you're a super rich journalist who's been in the game a long time, shouldn't he be willing to take a stand? Why haven't you seen a single anchor at CNN who's going to come out and speak? Look, Bernie Sanders is a commie and he's going to destroy the U.S. economy. We all know that. They won't say it. They're cowards. They're cowards. What do they risk? Oh, their ratings won't be as high. Oh, maybe they won't get invited to the fanciest parties in the Hamptons this summer. These people are the worst. They really are. I mean, at least the the trolls that work at some of these other, you know, the, the salon.com and some of these other places, you know, Slate, you know, they're all, all these writers living in Brooklyn who think that they're changing the world by being snarky idiots all day long. Um, you know, at least you can say for them, 
they gotta they gotta keep the hustle going so they can pay the bills. But some of these people you see in the big the big three letter news agency and corporate media that they got no excuse. There's there's no reason for them to be such wimps, except that they're they're you. They like their privileged positions and they won't speak the truth. Not only to the American people forget that they will not speak the truth to their Democrat audience. You know, there have been all these editorials about how about how journalism in the era of Trump means taking oppositional positions. They really write this. This has been a common theme, oppositional positions to Donald Trump, because that's what truth is. To be true, you must be opposed to Trump. Well, I'm sorry, but if you are any of the mainstream journo darlings out there and you don't know that Bernie Sanders would wreck the U.S. economy, you're a moron. But what's worse is I think most of them recognize it, but they're too cowardly, they're too wimpy to possibly alienate some of their audience by saying now, look, say what you will about conservatism. There are a lot of people that were willing to speak out incorrectly, it turned out, about Donald Trump, but they... During the primary, they said their piece. These Democrats, these big journos, they're just going along for the ride, man. They're just like, yeah, okay. You know, maybe it's going to be Sanders. We know they're all activists. So what I'm trying to say is that they are accessories. They are accomplices in the socialism surge that the Democratic Party is going through right now. They could do something to try to slow it down, but they won't. So just remember that. They've been pretending for years, that they're so concerned about authoritarianism, they're so concerned about an over, uh, overly powerful executive branch official. And Bernie Sanders is walking around saying, I'm, I'm going to take your money, I'm going to make you do things, I'm going to be in charge of everything, and it's just going to be executive order. Where's the where's the outrage? Where's it? No, instead, they, they give him the Chris Cuomo, you know, come on, come on, hey, it's bro Cuomo, come on, I mean, you know, you're not really, you're not really going to be, you know. You're not really going to be, like, doing that thing you said you're going to do about the thing, right? I mean, come on. You don't really think that, like, you know, Cuba or Castro. I mean, I mean, come on, right? I mean, it's not, it's, not, it's not great. Just tell us it's not great, and we can talk about how great you are. And he's like, nope. Literacy program equals good. Truth is truth. This is who you're up against. He's a radical. He's a radical. And keep in mind, I mean, I mean I'm not trying to say this in a way that's, you know, ungallant or anything, but, I mean, he's, Bernie Sanders feels like he's got, he's got nothing to lose. Remember this. I mean, he either, you know, he either wins this race and is in a position to fundamentally transform America or he gets to go down fighting. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not planning to have what I'm what I'm saying here is he's not going to have another 20 years of political career. So he's a guy who thinks he's playing with house money, your money. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I happen to believe in democracy, not authoritarianism. But, you know, you can't say China is another example. All right. China is an authoritarian country becoming more and more authoritarian. But can anyone deny? I mean, the facts are clear that they have taken more people out of extreme poverty than any country in history. Oh, boy. This is what I mean. He doesn't even know the, the basics. How has China been able to do that? Was was Mao able to do that? I mean, Mao was a communist he was a he was a collectivist a socialist and 40 to 60 million people starved because of his great ideas the great leap forward 40 60 million people atrocities so horrific because hunger became weaponized as a tool of state control during that period of, of the great famine and 
what Bernie Sanders takes from the, the, the lesson of China is not, wait a second, the Chinese authoritarian regime said, let's actually introduce free market reforms and have state-sponsored capitalism, which is what China is engaged in, right? State control, state control of free market-based activity. I mean, the, the Chinese government is trying to allow people to run big companies, sell their stuff on the global market so that there is wealth. The wealth creation mechanism is the market. This is what Bernie Sanders doesn't understand. The Chinese government didn't be, wasn't able to lift people out of poverty by instituting a higher tax rate. That's not how it worked. Or by promising free health care for everybody. That's not how it worked. So he doesn't even, in these models that he brings up, he doesn't even, and by the way, we always get into this thing of, okay, you know, there's the USSR, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and then those are the, the really, really bad socialist countries. And then you look at what happened in, or, or the left, the Bernie Sanders folks, will bring up Denmark and Sweden, and which are not socialist countries, but they have some socialist sectors in the countries, and they have a large welfare state and high taxation, uh, even though they are free market economies. Um, what about, I mean, you go down the list of all the other socialist experiments, socialist countries all throughout Africa and Latin America and all disasters. All of them are disasters. Economically, basket cases across the board. Dozens and dozens of them. Ones you don't even think about. Who sits around thinking about, oh, like, how did socialism work out in Albania? Pretty badly. Ask an Albanian. You know, I mean, there are all these places where we've run the experiment. It's a bad idea. And not only is it a bad idea, Sanders doesn't understand the places where it was run poorly and then they started to make things better, why things got better. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what we are calling for is universal child care. How are you going to pay for this? We have a tax on wealth to pay for that. For all the people who like the idea of it, there are going to be a lot of Democrats again who are saying, well, wait a minute, yet again, this is another program that... It's not clear how it's going to get paid for. No, it's it's just going to add. It to is clear how it's going to be paid for. Look, Anderson, but it's more taxes. It's taxes on billionaires. You know, you know, I get a little bit tired of hearing my opponents saying, um, gee, how are you going to pay for a program that impacts and helps children or working class families or middle class families? How are you going to pay for that? And yet, where are people saying, how are you going to pay for over $750 billion on military spending. How are you going to pay for a trillion dollars in tax breaks to the 1% in large corporations, which was what Trump did? When you help the billionaires and you help Wall Street, hey, of course we can pay for it. That's what America's supposed to be about. Well, I disagree. All demagoguery. I mean, just all blather. That's what this guy is. He's a blather machine. I mean, by the way, don't even get me started on if we had a sit down and, and I, I tried to this guy wants to be commander in chief and Democrats, they, they were so upset that Trump wasn't the the genius scholar that they pretended Obama was. Uh, do we really think that Bernie Sanders could have an intelligent discussion about, oh, I don't know. Why did we win the Cold War, Bernie Sanders? Why did the Soviet Union fail? Somebody should ask Bernie Sanders if we had a real press corps, which we don't. We don't. We have activist Democrats who, just like they've taken over universities and faculty lounges and colleges across the country, they've also completely turned journal journalism into a province of the left. 
which is why they hate talk radio so much, because it was a format where audience got to determine what they were listening to, not a bunch of corporate executives who, with FCC assistance, are able to determine who gets their time where and, you know, what, what cable channels exist. Who thinks that Bernie Sanders would be able to explain what went wrong in Venezuela? I mean, he would just say things like, you know, there was corruption and, you know, they didn't do a good job. And OK, but why didn't it work? I'm telling you, he could not explain. He couldn't even begin to explain it. What's scary here is that Bernie Sanders isn't even a smart socialist. This is this is what I, I really feel like I have to say, say to you. There are very clever socialists. In fact, for most of his adult life and probably close to up, up until the end, you know, Christopher Hitchens, who's one of my favorite writers, even though he's a rabid atheist and unfair to the Catholic Church. And there was a lot of stuff that I didn't agree with him on. But in terms of writing talent, the guy was exceptional. He was really good at the craft of writing and was also very engaging at argument and would and, and would argue with whomever wanted to argue with him. I mean, he wasn't, you know, these other people, you know, these these CNN anchors and the MSNBC talking heads, these people are cowards. They never actually put themselves in a position to have a real argument. But Hitchens was a socialist. He's a very smart one, though. So he would explain to you why, and he would get it. He, was, he would consider himself a Trotskyite, which I don't even know how much Bernie Sanders could explain to you about the difference between, let's say, Trotsky versus being a Leninist and the split there and what happened, although that is probably his favorite part of history, so maybe he does know a bit about it. And does, does Bernie Sanders, is he somebody who could speak about what's in Dust Capital? I'm not even sure what I'm saying to you that Bernie Sanders understands the foundation of the ideology that he is now the single most powerful representative of in the United States, and with that, in a sense, among the most powerful socialists in the world. He is representing a resurgence of this ideology. And I think that we're in the midst of this resurgence in, a, in part because of the great success of the opponents of socialism, the capitalist impulse that has been on display in this country for, well, depending on how you want to de uh, define it, let's just say in the post-World War II era, because socialism was ascendant during the Great Depression. That was when all of a sudden the storyline, and journalists were favorable to it, by the way, and I mean the most elite journalists in the country. Lots of journalists thought that the Soviet Union had figured all this out. They bought into the propaganda. The same dumbasses who write for the biggest newspapers that are on the biggest cable news shows in the country uh, today who think that Jussie Smollett was telling the truth, or they did think that, you know, you, you go back to Walter Durante, you go back to the famine in Ukraine, and nope, nothing going on there. They just believe, they either lied or believed the propaganda about there not being a famine in, I think it was 1934 to 1935. The uh, Ukrainians call it the Holodomor, or just a, and it was a, a, another weaponized famine. Talk about state control and forced deprivation and, and desperation. Um, Sanders is not even a clever socialist. He's a pure demagogue. The same way that Joe Biden has been just repeating almost like a robot whatever he thinks he has to say at any point in time to have the greatest appeal to voters. In that sense, he's a, he's a pure cynical politician. And that's Biden's whole career. What do I have to say to keep getting elected in the state of Delaware? What do I have to say to to be in the good graces of the Democratic Party? That's what I will say. I mean, the, the man doesn't seem to stand for anything other than Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders is, what do I have to say that will appeal to the class warfare instincts and the, the underlying socialist impulse that has always existed in America, but now is ascendant? I was saying before it was ascendant after the Great Depression, 
because there was a sense that cap there was a, the, the narrative, the storyline was that capitalism has failed, and that that's why the Great Depression happened. The capitalism was a failure, and uh, we were going to enter a new phase. And they looked around, they saw all the desperation, and figured, well, the government must be able to save us. So they wanted to turn to government. And the Soviet Union was pretending that things were much better there than it was. Okay. Now we're in a different position where capitalism has created so much abundance. We are so blessed in this country right now. We are, we are so full of, of the, the, the riches and the wages of a free market system that rewards individual ingenuity and, and hard work and dedication. And yes, luck, to be sure. All, all good things in life require some degree of luck. But we have a system where we walk around now with greater ability to communicate, to buy things, to have our, our, our health taken care of. I mean, food is orders of magnitude better. And I mean everywhere, everywhere you go. Food is better than it was even when I was a kid. The stuff we eat is better. Our, our, the, I mean, you walk into a, a grocery store anywhere in America and the variety and abundance and quality is mind-blowing, especially compared to what you would have seen not 100 years ago, but circa 1990 in Moscow. You know, go, you go online, you see photos of it. You know, there's like one type of pickled beet in one kind of can, and then a lot of empty shelves. I mean, that, that that's what, and, you know, maybe some, some powdered milk that you're not sure if it's been around since, you know, Khrushchev was in office. I mean, that's what people were dealing with there. What was the difference that we didn't have enough socialism? Was that was that is that why we have so much more? We didn't have enough socialism or is that socialism is a bad idea? Everybody should be very concerned about this. But the Democrats, you see, they're so obsessed with power and they're so deluded in their Trump hatred that they'll go along with this. They'll, they'll go along with it or they have to. A lot of the Democrat establishment is still hoping that there'll be some you know, late surge from Biden. Oh, we'll get into Biden in a second. I really mean Biden is he's not up for this. He's not up for it. They, they can keep pretending, but it is now clear the campaign is a, a, a crucible. I mean, the campaign is an obstacle course for physical and mental endurance for for the people that want to be the next commander in chief and chief executive of the United States government. And Biden is falling into the mud pit and walling around and not going to make it to the end. And everybody who's being honest sees it. But there's this situation right now. Whoa, is it going to be is it going to be Bernie Sanders? Really? It's going to be Sanders, huh? Um, he talked about child care there. Uh, you know who else had and by the way, this is not an unfair comparison because I, I want to, I want to tell you what I think the the real goal should be. The real goal of the U.S. economy should be something that even Elizabeth Warren wrote about years and years ago, which was the two parent income trap. The two parent income trap is something that means you have two parents that feel like they have to go out into the workplace now. It's too difficult because there has been. I know there are problems. I know this is not perfect. You know, I, I did not get an advanced degree because it was too expensive. I got into fantastic places. Couldn't have gotten a master's degree. Would have been great. Actually, all kinds of different master's programs. I thought about getting a security studies uh, master's at one point, too. And I basically could have walked into from the CIA to any program I wanted. But the point is, I didn't do it because it was too expensive. Healthcare, housing, 
housing where there are jobs and education have become too expensive. These are also some of the most regulated government intensive sectors of the economy. Somehow we have government backing student loans and now college gets more and more and more expensive. These universities are just just fattening themselves up. I mean, they're bloated with multi-billion dollar endowments. It's beyond belief what's going on. And healthcare is supposed to get better and cheaper for us. And really, a lot of healthcare, uh, all, all you see is it's getting more expensive and less access, more expensive and less access, because they keep intruding on the market mechanisms that would the same thing that makes your iPhone a supercomputer that would have more power to do computation than every computer put together in the NATO alliance, you know, circa 1960, your iPhone has more in it than all, all of the countries of NATO combined in, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, that same mechanism of the free market, we, we suppress that when it comes to healthcare. We, we don't want that to happen. Uh, we, we don't think that anybody could come up with better ways to cure people, to treat people, if there was a financial incentive for them. No, we, we'd rather have keep pushing down. The, the healthcare companies are making too much money. The, the pharmaceutical companies are making too much money. Well... Pharmaceutical companies, the people that go to work for them, they could do something else, too. But I, I want to bring you into back to this daycare that Bernie Sanders is promising for any, everybody, because this is important. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So I was I mentioned to you the daycare from the daycare proposal from Bernie Sanders. And what we really should want in this country is the ability for a person who is in the has a what we consider a middle class job to be able to live in a you know, in a metro area where there are jobs because that's now where the greatest concentration of new jobs tends to happen not in the city necessarily but around the city and be able to support a family on one salary that's that would be because we fight against this now and I'm probably going to start introducing some of the Marxist attacks on the family because the Marxists have always believed in separating the family because the family stands in place of the ultimate goal of a true socialist, a true Marxist, which is not just radical equality when you're talking about economics, but a radical equality of all individuals without familial ties interfering with the relationship with the state. The true socialists believe in the state in place of God. This is at the heart of socialist philosophy. We want... A society in this country where people are able to raise their own children, where you don't have to have two parents uh, going to work. And then there's also this other issue of single parenthood in this country and how I know that things happen and people make mistakes or things you know go against them. But single parenthood has been glorified in this country. And the realities of it based on the numbers. Now, that doesn't mean any individual case is, is, is good or bad, but based on the numbers, single parenthood is very difficult for the long-term prospects uh, for children. And there's, it's just it's, it's irrefutable. More likely to have a substance abuse problem, the kids. More likely to go to prison. Less likely to finish high school. Less likely, I mean, every metric. Less, uh, less income. So you get into, okay, well, but also, I mean, if you're in a single-parent household, uh, or rather, you know, if, if Bernie Sanders is is advocating for this, uh, you're going to have situations now where people are spending even less time. Now, now no parent will be spending most of the day with the child. It'll be the state. This is a story from the New York Times back in 1974. 
in the Soviet Union, daycare is the norm. Zoya Idenko is the model of the young Soviet mother, liberated by a local daycare center that permits her to hold a job. With her three-year-old son in a state nursery, she works as a guide for in-tourist and sometimes also teaches English at night school. Under the highly subsidized Soviet daycare system, Mrs. Idenko pays a modest $13 a month, about one-tenth of her pay, for six days a week of child care. She drops her boy off at 8 a.m. and picks him up at 7 p.m. He gets three meals and a snack daily. Child-rearing never had much attraction for Mrs. Idenko. I mean, it goes on even, even more. Here, here she actually throws some shade at, at America. Quote, don't American women want to get out of the house, she asked. Don't you want to work? Don't you want to earn money and get some independence? But privately, many educated Soviet mothers take a much more skeptical view of the Soviet daycare system and regard the competence of most daycare workers as below desirable standards. You don't say. The Soviets, who, you know, had glass factories that only made broken glass... I'm sure they did a great job educating your kid and taking care of him and or her and, and making sure that that child felt uh, loved and supported and was getting all the developmental needs they had met. I'm sure. I'm sure they weren't dropped off in austere, cinder block, Soviet-style buildings with a bunch of bureaucrats who could care less about anything going on with these kids and felt like as long as they made their way, you know, as long as at the end of the day no kids left the classroom, you know, in a, in a tiny body bag, they'd pretty much done their deal for the day. Good job. Good job, Soviet Union. But notice the trend. People have been let, you know, we, we see this deterioration, deterioration of the family and in intact family units. It is, you can read about this. All the honest social scientists will tell you intact families are critical for the development of a child. Uh, you want to spend time with your children and, I mean, and I'm not even getting into the paying for this. I'm getting into, we really think that everyone should drop off their, their one-year-old at state daycare? That's now going to be, what, what, about fam, what about family members, you know, grandparents, uncles, cousins, whatever it is? People that are invested in the child. The state is not invested in anything other than taking your money and indoctrinating your children. The same way that adults make a huge error when they think that the state wants to hold them close and keep them safe and warm at night. The same wrong thinking applies when you're talking about dropping off your children in this state daycare program, where, by the way, if you don't like the state daycare program near you, what do you think happens then? Oh, you're going to go complain to somebody? Yeah. Good luck with that. I'm sure the local daycare commissar under the Sanders administration is really going to care what you think about the fact that the people in charge could give a crap about your children. They just want to get paid with your tax dollars. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't want to live in a democracy where outside foreign power determines who my leaders are. And that's going to happen more and more, not just in the United States, but you've had experiences here in Germany, experiences across Europe. So let's come on. Let's, let's face up to the reality that if we don't protect our democracy, we're slowly but steadily surrendering it and losing control of it. You know what? I, politics is, is a contact sport. I mean, people say all, all sorts of things because they certainly have said all sorts of things about me. I'll support the nominee of 
our party because I think that uh, uh, you know, our current president is a clear and present danger to democracy and uh, to our future. Blather from Hillary Clinton. She is shameless, utterly shameless. She'll say anything. The fact that Democrats think that she would have been some great choice for the presidency, that she would have been this this ethical paragon, this virtuous leader is laughable. She could not be more corrupt. You know, it, it couldn't be more obvious that there was an effort to suppress what we could all see, which was that the Clinton Foundation was a massive slush fund created for the sole purpose of enriching and empowering the Clintons while pretending to do charitable work. You haven't heard a lot about the Clinton Foundation lately, have you? Those donations all dried up real fast when Hillary wasn't going to be president anymore. That's so weird, isn't it? Hmm. And it's not like, oh, no, it is true that I was at C- I was at CNN and I was saying to people uh, on air, we all know the Clinton Foundation is like a fake charity, right? And that the donations, we'll see where they are after the election. And, of course, I was right. But they were CNN, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But she calls the president a – she, she repeats the talking points about Russia, which is just now – that is the hallmark of a, of a a reckless, stupid, or dishonest person, or or all of the above. Uh, Russia is not picking our leaders. No one really thinks Russia is picking our leaders. This is this is ridiculous. And if you look back in history, the KGB was involved in paying for newspapers, involved in information operations against the United States. Had high level, did have high level penetrations of the United States government, including Alger Hiss, who was a Harvard trained lawyer that the establishment in this country flocked around. I mean, they they circled the wagons to defend Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers, as he writes about beautifully in the book Witness, which I recommend to all of you. Whitaker Chambers is like this guy is a, is a Soviet spy and he works at a senior level in the United States government. He's a Soviet spy. Because the left has always had a little bit of the, uh, they've always had this special fondness and familiarity with totalitarians and communists. They always have had this. Because their mentality, their mindset is that if the government only had more power, it would make the problems go away. And they're the smart, good people. So if you take the smart, good people and you put them in power, then all of a sudden everything gets better. Whereas conservatives, people like me and those of you listening who are conservative, which is pretty much all of you. Uh, We think, no, 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 we want individual rights, individual liberty to be protected under law, and we want there to be clear restraints on what the government can do, because there also are areas the government should not do things. It's not even just that we don't like the idea. There would be negative consequences from government action. And this is the constant struggle that we have day in and day out in in our politics. But for Hillary Clinton to say the Russia stuff... Oh, she's she's just atrocious. She's atrocious. And we all know it. And they pretend that she well, now they don't really care anymore. But they for for years were told how smart and how capable and how great she is. The worst. She is the worst. Okay, no, I got to retract that. Sanders is probably even worse. (laughs) So we've we've gone from bad to worse or the worst with Hillary Clinton saying that Trump is a clear and present danger to our democracy and our future. You know, I'm focusing in so much today on Sanders. I want to talk about some of the other Democrat candidates. We have this uh, debate tonight in South Carolina. But the crazy has spread far and wide in the Democratic Party. This is not limited to one candidate or one candidate's supporters. 
Tom Steyer, he is a billionaire, which just goes to show you that if you're really lucky, you're in the right place at the right time. You too, even if you have no judgment, no wisdom whatsoever, and really no self-awareness, you too can be a a billionaire, I suppose. Uh, this is what a voter, a Democrat, obviously, in South Carolina said to Tom Steyer and his response. I just I want to give you more evidence that the Democratic Party has has spun off of the planet and they're living in crazy town now. Play a seven. Um, I'm 27 years old and I still have buying a house, getting married and having kids ahead of me. What do you say to people my age and those who are younger who are frankly terrified of what climbing, climate change will do to this planet and our futures? So, Natalie, thank you for asking that question. Look, I am the only person running for president who will say that climate is his or her number one priority. The only one. Go ask him. The only one. And I've said that I will declare, just so you know, Natalie, a state of emergency on climate on the first day of my presidency. And I will use the executive emergency powers of the presidency to tell companies how they can generate electricity, what kind of cars they can build on what schedule, what kind of buildings we're going to have, how we're going to use our public lands, how the government, which is the biggest buyer of fossil fuels in the world, is going to move to clean energy. Yeah, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. Let's start with. A voter, a 27-year-old woman saying she is terrified of climate change. Be terrified of, you know, making the wrong life choices. Be terrified of pandemic disease. Be terrified of the possibility of a major war with China. I mean, there are things to really be concerned about. To be terrified of climate change is to surrender to a mental illness. Climate change is not coming for us. It's not going to destroy us. It's not going to kill us. This is insane. This really is not reasonable. It's not rational at all. And I think that, you know, they, they have to assume that I'm, I'm somehow the crazy one because I don't think the world is going to end. This is what American politics has done to people. The guy who sits around saying, no, no, the human race will not go extinct unless we destroy essentially all the major economic progress we've made in the last hundred years or so. The human race will not go extinct if we don't just give back all of those gains and productivity and, and life, expe- uh, life expectancy and health and, and everything. I'm the crazy one because I say that that's not going to happen. So I, I, feel almost, I feel badly, but I also uh, feel very concerned when I hear things like this because there are things to worry about and climate change is not one of them. And for a young woman to say she's terrified of climate change, what exactly is she terrified? Somebody should ask her. I mean, I feel like I should sit down and we could do a, like a Sigmund Freud, like, so tell me all of your secrets and your thoughts. What are you terrified of? Tell me about your parents. You know, like, this is, this is where you'd have to get into some buck pretending to be a shrink, some psychotherapy. You're terrified of a thing that's not going to hurt you in any way, shape, or form. Of the global temperature changing. That's what worries you so much. But this is like people that used to worry that there was going to be, um, you know, we're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of food. That was a, a belief. You know, you read Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. You know, we're going to reach a certain population growth and then we're going to have huge contractions. Not everyone's going to die, but huge contractions because we won't be able to sustain it. And now the biggest problem we have globally is people eat too many calories. That's a much bigger concern than people not getting enough calories globally. 
So, okay. Um, she's terrified of climate change, which is bizarre. But then the the even more concerning part of this, other than that, well, that poor woman's emotional instability, is that uh, Tom Steyer is just saying that he's going to, if he becomes president, which I know is never going to happen, but I'm just, we're exploring a mentality here that's not just Biden. I'm sorry, not just Bernie, although Biden's got his own problems. Uh, the mentality is that once you become president, you just start doing things. Obama did this, and the media was largely silent about it or encouraged it. You know, Obama's mantra became, Congress won't do what I want, so I'm just going to do it myself as president with an executive order and, and see if the courts will, will stop me. And the courts did a number of times and overturned him for doing unconstitutional things. That was the reality of the Obama administration. But you never heard the same thing, though, with Trump is waging war on journalists. Meanwhile, Obama took real action against journalists and used the Espionage Act more than every other president before him combined. But, you know, the journalists wrote like one or two editorials. They're like, this is a concerning situation. They say that Trump is endangering journalists' lives. But, oh, this is a concerning situation with Obama with actual trying to prosecute people as co-conspirators under the Espionage Act who are journalists. Uh, journalists are frauds. I mean, I really, it's funny. I'm, I'm in I'm in this media profession. I'm not a journalist. And I my contempt for mainstream journalists grows every day. Every day. I feel like I'm more fed up with what a bunch of just total jokes and jerks they are. Very few of them provide any real value. They all, they all just parrot each other, and they're all just struggling to get more attention for their boring repetition of the talking points of the Democrat Party and the American left. That, that's what they're doing all the time. I mean, the ones who are valuable, the ones who are like, here's the traffic, here's the weather. Hey, here's a video of some ducks that were saved at the pond by the fire department. Yay. Like, that's, you know, okay. That's providing people with something. The ones that just carry the water of the Democratic Party all the time, we don't need that. Just go just go, go to the DNC website. Uh, but Bern, but uh, Steyer here saying that he wants to use e- executive power to control, I mean, basically to control everything. What kind of cars they can build, what kind of buildings we're going to have, how we generate electricity. So when I say things to you like climate change is an excuse for for socialist authoritarians to enact policies to control every aspect of your life, that's not just, I'm, I'm not coming up with that out of thin air. That is what they're doing. That is the idea. That is the approach. So you end up, you end up asking yourself, okay, um, these people are nuts, and if they're in charge, they're going to just do things. Forget about the Congress. They're just going to do things based on their crazy ideas this is broader in the Democratic Party. This is not just a problem of Bernie Sanders. That's what I wanted to make sure that we are all on the same page about. And then there's Biden. Oh, Joe Biden. He's probably going to win in South Carolina. And then the Biden, the Bidenistas out there in the media will say, see, he is the front runner. Mm, no. And I, we start to get into this place where I don't want to be mean about Joe Biden's condition, um, but health and mental faculties are a legitimate area of discussion for the person who wants to be the president of the United States. And this is uh, this is not a a one off. I mean, this is becoming increasingly the the expectation around Joe Biden is that he's going to have these what you would, I think, call a senior moment. Um, And this is an example of that. Here's Joe Biden. On the stump, doing what he does, play clip five. 
And you're the ones that sent Barack Obama the presidency. And I have a simple proposition here. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other guy. Give me a look, though, okay? That's all I really got to say to you. Running for Senate, and if you don't like me, vote for the other Biden. That was in one sentence. I mean, if it were one of those things and he corrected it right away, I mean, I misspeak. I do extemporaneous radio for four hours a day now. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to say things incorrectly. But if I ever said, you know, my name is Bob Sexton, I promise you I would change that. I would edit that. I wouldn't say it and then go, yeah, it's good to be Bob. You know, Bob's hanging out. No, you would catch that unless something else is going on. And it wasn't one little slip. It was he's running for president. He's not running for Senate. And there's no other Biden in the race. And he just kind of went on with it. But then again, there's a part of me that feels like maybe the greatest service the Democratic Party, the, the Democrat media can do right now is to save the Democratic Party from a Bernie Sanders nomination. I mean, m- maybe they're much more uh, cynical about this than I had, I had really given them credit for or, or anticipated. I think that's also possible. That they recognize what a disaster Bernie Sanders would be for the party. And so perhaps some of them, somewhere in their minds, feel like if they have to prop Biden up some more, then that's what they're going to do. That's the best thing they can do for the party. We'll see about Bloomberg. There was a funny meme making the rounds today. Well, I'm sorry, it wasn't a meme. It wasn't a meme. Pardon me. It was a, I'm Joe Biden. I'm running for president. Uh it was a uh, screenshot of the Los, Los Angeles Times, one of the homepages in the Los Angeles Times for one of their sections. And the thing, it looked like the Bloomberg 2020 website. I mean, just Bloomberg ads all over it. I, I don't think it was Photoshopped. I can't, I can't tell you right off the bat, but it certainly seemed like it would be real. I mean, Bloomberg is just blanketing coverage everywhere. I think that one of the, one of the nice side effects of a Bloomberg, or the Bloomberg run for president is that he is really trying to play. It's almost like he's setting this up as an experiment. Can you buy the presidency? And when he is not successful in doing so, when people on the left, because they always Democrats always pretend like big money is just a Republican thing, when they say, we want money out of politics and you can't buy, you know, he's trying to buy this office or that office, we can say, no, no, Bloomberg tried to buy it and you can't just do that. The candidate still matters. If you have effectively unlimited funds... You still can't buy the presidency. But think about this. We are in a situation where somebody who is worth $50 billion is spending billions of dollars on a presidential candidacy. And there are still journalists out there. Hillary Clinton will say it, too. Many of many of the Democrats that Russia is interfering in the election and maybe Russia is going to cost one side or the other. We'll make Trump win if that's what they're really saying even with the billions of dollars being spent by Americans on an American presidential election. If the Russians were able to sway this election outcome, we should just quit tomorrow. We should stop having elections because we'll never be able to have a free and fair election again. This is lunacy. This is utter lunacy. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
David, one of the things that's so interesting and I think sinister about this stuff is that it really does have the impact of trying to increase cynicism and apathy, that that's part of its goal, to sort of muddy the waters. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about your insights into that. Well, it has it has an effect also on people's affirmative ideas. One of the things that Donald Trump tried to spend, spread in 2016 was the idea that Hillary Clinton was somehow physically incapable of managing the presidency. I mean, it's audacious. Donald Trump was the oldest uh, president ever, one of the fattest presidents ever, the least physically capable president since uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. I mean, he can't pick up a ball, never mind throw it. Um, but he was able to put into the minds of tens of millions of people the idea that Hillary Clinton, who's a very vigorous woman in good health, was somehow too sick to be president. Thanks, Never Trump, for more stupidity. David Frum over there, who runs away from it. He actually does have some correct positions on things like immigration, immigration where he's thought about it a little bit. But uh, Trump is one of the fattest presidents ever. I think it's interesting. I mean, we're going to start talking about that now, huh? Um, Hillary Clinton flopped into the back of a van on video right before the election. I think, and and they pretended initially like there was nothing going on. She just stumbled. No, she flopped into the back of a van, all right? You're allowed to wonder what's going on there. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't some huge conspiracy from Trump. But as you see here, never Trump, they're so dug in in, in their hatred for this guy because they feel like they've bet their careers, they've bet their paychecks or, or you know, their, their fame and their importance. Their ego is so tied into anti-Trumpism that they can't even see straight anymore. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was wondering, do you think justice was served in the Harvey Weinstein case? So I was never a fan of Harvey Weinstein, as you know. In fact, he said he was going to work hard to defeat me in the election. How did that work out, by the way? I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, he, uh, he was a person I didn't like, never liked. Uh, I don't know too much about the case between traveling and, and being at meetings almost every hour of the day, every minute of the day. I haven't been able to really see too much of it. But I was just not a fan of his. I, I knew him a little bit, not very well. I knew him because he was in New York. Uh, not, not a person that I like. I will say the, the people that liked him were the Democrats. Uh, Michelle Obama loved him. Loved him. Hillary Clinton loved him. And he uh, gave tremendous money to the Democrats. And I guess my question is, will the Democrats be asking for that money back? Not going to hear that from a lot of the mainstream outlets right now that, that are celebrating the Weinstein verdict as a huge uh, win for women. Um, which I, I think there's there's some there's some truth to that, but there's also some concerning follow-on uh, legal implications, I believe. And I know no one really seems to want to talk about this right now, and I'll get into that part of it in a second. Uh, but journalists are running around patting themselves in the back for the Weinstein verdict, saying, "See, journalism still is important." No, no journalists covered up for this guy and did his bidding for decades, and then when he got a little old and a little less powerful, a little less useful. Then all of a sudden, it was time to write the big expose, the Ronan Farrow piece. But I, I can't help but remember that Ronan Farrow, who I think won a Pulitzer for this and became the celebrated guy, I still remember he had the worst, I mean, it really was all time, the worst cable news commentary show ever put on the air in my lifetime. The worst. I mean, I think Alec Baldwin's show was better. Ronan Farrow would sort of sit there and, yes, I'm going to do an interview now and... Um 
Yeah, did I tell you? I worked at the State Department for like three months, and uh, it was really important, and I'm a Rhodes Scholar, and uh, you know, it was just horrible. And then he came out, and he wrote this piece, and he took some heat, and he, he was willing to take the risk here, but he had the goods on Weinstein. He knew he did. I mean, the fact that NBC didn't want to run with it initially is an interesting part of the story, but he knew he had him. There was no, there was no like wiggling out when you got all these people on the record and everything else. I give him credit. You know, he did he did publish a story at first, but I also can't forget that that credibility in the Me Too movement that Ronan Farrow built by going after Harvey Weinstein was then weaponized for political purposes during the Kavanaugh hearing with that just appallingly flimsy and uh, obviously false story about Deborah Ramirez at Yale that he went with and where he, you know, the people that did know about it or didn't, did, you know, know about her, didn't believe that it had happened. And I mean, it just, you go back into it and they just were, they were like, Ronan, we need you here. It's about Roe v. Wade. You got to do what you got to do. Step in there and take down Kavanaugh. So I remember that. I'm not going to forget that. So as far as I'm concerned, he's just another hack. He threw away his credibility with that. He didn't have to do that. I think it was with Jane Jane Mayer, too. I mean, they just they thought they had an opportunity to take down Kavanaugh, and it was a hit. It was a dirty political hit. It was a lie. I'm sorry. You don't take a week to get counseling on your memories to remember if some guy in college hit you in the face with his genitalia. You don't, you don't it doesn't take it. And if you're so traumatized by it, it wouldn't take you a week to remember this, which is what happened with Deborah Ramirez. I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous. But, you know, it's like all these other stories that came out. Julie Swetnick, you know, the gang rape crews and everything. This was it was all just everything you can. It was really the weaponization of gender against Kavanaugh. That was what was going on. Um, and thank God it was close. But thank God Kavanaugh was able to withstand it. And, and the United States Senate did do the right thing. I mean, you got to remember, at least the Republicans did. So, okay, now we look at what Trump is saying here about Weinstein. Weinstein wasn't just a guy who was friends with Democrats. Weinstein was close to the most powerful Democrats in the country, which he used and leveraged in order to frighten women and any anyone who would speak about what he was doing to women into silence. So that's something that should get more attention and should get looked at more. I mean, here is, for example, remember, remember there were stories. Everybody knew the stories about Harvey Weinstein being a guy who was very aggressive with women, very difficult to do. I actually just spoke to somebody recently who had done business with him back when he was a, a concert promoter. That's how he got started out as a concert promoter. And then he moved into doing the Hollywood studio stuff and just said he was imp impossible to deal with, uh, a, a nasty, dishonest guy. So Democrats love him. Powerful, rich, influential in the culture, but a nasty, amoral, predatory, left-wing lib. Hey, that fits right into the Democrat. You know, the Democrats think that's all great. Um, and I mean, here's, for example, when Trump said Trump said that uh, Harvey Weinstein was liked by these different very powerful figures. Here's Michelle Obama talking about Harvey Weinstein. Play clip three. I want to start by thanking Harvey Weinstein for organizing this amazing day. This is 
possible because of Harvey. Uh, he is a wonderful human being, a good friend, and uh, just a powerhouse. And the fact that he and his team took the time to make this happen for all of you should say something not about me or about this place, but about you. All right? Everybody, we are here because of you. A wonderful human being. And this was just, I don't know, probably this was during the Obama presidency. So just a few years ago that that soundbite was, uh, we, we pulled that soundbite. And um, if you believe the all of the women who testified against Harvey Weinstein, he's been raping women since the 90s. But, but here you have probably the single most popular Democrat figure in the United States. It's always kind of, it's Oprah or Michelle Obama. You know, there's only a few people that are as, as universally beloved in all the polling and everything else. Uh, saying that he's a wonderful human being. Do you think anyone in the power structure will be held to account for this? Journalists didn't want to cover this story, and now they pat themselves on the back. Journalists didn't want to cover Epstein, who was also connected to all of these very powerful Democrats. Democrats are the ones that Epstein was. They focus so much on Prince Andrew because he's at least external to American politics. The media is, oh, look at the Prince Andrew situation. Uh, Epstein spent a lot of time with Bill Clinton, spent a lot of time with some other prominent Democrats. They didn't want to touch that. Um, the, look, I, I understand that the pressures that come up in the media business, it's very uncertain, it's very unfair. Uh, I just have a problem with people pretending to be brave when they're actually just uh, sniveling cowards. And most journalists on these issues have been uh, sniveling cowards. There's, there's no question about that. Now I go to the... Why? Okay, yeah, Harvey Weinstein. Do I do I think that he um, has forced himself on women based on the testimony of? Yeah, I do. I think he has. I think he's. Uh, I think he has sexually assaulted women. I do believe that. But here's what I do have a problem with, and I think the jury had a bit of a problem with this too, because they did not go for the highest counts of predatory sexual assault. Now we don't know exactly why that is, but. It now there's now been at a very high pro in a, the highest profile case you could really think of for this kind of issue. There has been a standard set whereby a woman can uh, can have an interest in having a sexual relationship with a man and can claim that there was a an attack, a felonious rape occurred. And then after that felony, after that criminal act that could send that man to prison for 25 years, as we see now, at least that's what it is in New York, after committing a crime that could send you to prison for 25 years, that woman could, of her own volition, not married to him, doesn't live with him, not, you know, in fear of her life or physical abuse constantly, that woman can then continue a long-term, ongoing, not just relationship, sexual relationship with that man by her own choice and then at a later date say but but that one time um, he raped me so he should go to prison for the rest of his life uh, this uh, I'm just telling and maybe you believe in this case that is exactly what happened and, and uh, okay may, maybe that is exactly what happened in this case this is a precedent now though the same way that I knew that Ronan Farrow after all the accolades about breaking the Me Too story, just give it time. He's going to go after a big Republican. It was very obvious. They were going to use this after, to go after, and they used it in the biggest, the biggest form they could. They took the biggest shot they had against Kavanaugh, and he was a part of that. You will now see this 
this uh, you know, story of a case will return where a woman will claim that a very powerful man that she had a long term sexual relationship with at some point during that relationship forced himself upon her or, you know, she felt physically violated. And even though after that she's all, I, you know, I love you, which is what they were saying to Harvey. Two of the women were saying, to her, I, I love you, Harvey Weinstein, they would say. Please spend more time with me. Please have sex with me again. There will be cases now where going forward, a woman will have that same kind of ongoing emotional and sexual relationship with a man. But all of a sudden, she will decide that, no, there was I was actually raped and I want to press charges and I want that this person should be destroyed by the criminal justice system for what they did to me. Now, if they did actually force themselves on her and, you know, rape is a serious crime, and it's a felony and that should be the case. As we know, there are false race. There are false rape accusations that occur. This does happen. And now this makes it much more uh, probable in my mind that you'll have an even more sort of gray area accusation down the line. I'm not talking about Harvey Weinstein. I'm talking about the precedent this sets now where I don't know what if what if a woman feels like she is uh, scorned by an individual? What if a woman feels like, you know, oh, he went out and had an affair with the maid? Um, you know, I'm going to say that 10 years ago, that one time when we were both a little drunk and he thought it was all fun, that he actually raped me. You no longer would be able to say, but I mean, we've been in a relationship for 10 years and you you didn't seem to think that I was a rapist for any of those years. Right. That doesn't matter anymore. That's this is a new thing. And in an era where we're being told you have to get videotaped consent. Oh, no, even that's not enough. Or you have to get you know consent on an app. Oh, that's not enough. And where we're always told that you, women must be believed, even though we know that there are some women who lie. In fact, lying about rape is much more common than lying about other felony crimes. Just a fact, in the statistics, about 10%. That means 90% of women who are sexually assaulted uh, are telling the truth. So 9 out of 10 women, based on the numbers, are telling the truth. And those scummy guys should be thrown in prison for a very, very long time. But there are going to be these other cases. There are going to be Kavanaugh's, my friends. And you will see now that this has changed the standard by which a man's actions can be judged by a jury such that he will have to he will have to be able to to uh, to prove that every act every time over a long period with a woman when there was a lot of consent. If there was one time where consent was in doubt, maybe he has to go to prison for a long time. That's a standard that we're going to go back and look at and say, how is this really workable in a criminal justice system in a way that's going to be fair? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I just wanted to follow up on uh, my colleague's question about Russian interference. Can you pledge to the American people that you will not accept any foreign assistance in the upcoming election? And on this idea of a purge in your administration, uh, there was recently the departure of your acting DNI, Joseph McGuire. You replaced him with your ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell. Uh, some of your critics have uh, pointed out that Ambassador Grinnell has no intelligence experience. How can you justify find the American people having an acting DNI with no intelligence. Okay, first of all, I want no help from any country, and I haven't been given help from any country. And if you see what CNN, your wonderful network, said, uh, I guess they apologized in a way for, didn't they apologize for the fact that they said certain things that weren't true? Tell me, what was their apology yesterday? What did they say? Mr. President, I think our record on delivering the truth is 
is a lot better than yours sometimes, if you don't mind me saying. Let me tell you about your record. Your record is so bad, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You have probably I'm not ashamed of anything in our You probably have the worst record in the history of broadcasting. Love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss this, man. I mean, whatever. I, I think we got four more years of it, hopefully. But thank God. I mean, Jim Acosta is a joke and a, and a, a, a complete and utter uh, mockery of what journalism is allegedly suppo- uh, supposed to be. Um, but here you have the usual, you know, when did you stop beating your wife question from the media? Will you pledge now that you will not take foreign interference? Yeah, yeah of course he's not going to take foreign interference. It's such... It's such a a dirty maneuver to even ask a president about this. Foreign interference wouldn't even help him. It's stupid. It's a dumb idea. I remember the president told me this himself. He's like, it doesn't even make any, when I was sitting in the Oval Office, the president, it doesn't even make any sense. Well, what are we we're going to do what? Oh, we're going to spread some memes on Facebook about Hillary and then possibly have all this, you know, think about all that's come from this special counsel and all this election stuff that's, Led nowhere because it was all based on lies. But imagine if it was based on the truth. So it's it's not even a good plan. But the, the people that have pushed this are still fixated on it because otherwise they'd have to look in the mirror and realize they're a bunch of dopes, a bunch of idiots. And they've done a lot of damage to the country as a result of this. Um, the truth is that the likeliest place that you will see foreign interference, I'm sorry, interference Illicit interference in our election comes from inside the intelligence community itself. Inside the intelligence community, you will see um, people who leak information. That's the entire latest round of Russia collusion insanity resulted really almost direct resulted directly from uh, a briefing given to members of Congress, a whole bunch of them, by the intelligence community. In a way that if you were designing a meeting that you knew would have details that would leak, that's what it would be. Get a whole bunch of members of Congress together, put out the explosive allegation that Russia is still helping Trump. And then, oh, there were so many people in the room. I don't know who told the press because it's classified. It's illegal to leak that information to the press. But guess what? It leaked very quickly. There'll be more of this. You know, Marie Yovanovitch just got a seven-figure book deal. Yeah, that's right. She's got over a million dollars to write a book. The book's going to suck. No one's going to read it. It's going to be boring. That's not the point. It's a payoff for her being a good little soldier of the deep state against Trump. The left does this. They're far better at it than we are. We we got a handful of conservative billionaires that love to write checks to, like, boring think tanks that don't really do anything. Uh, We need to start having outlets and, and platforms for people who are soldiers for conservatism. Where you can go, well, you'll where uh, you'll be taken care of. We, you know, we need publishing imprints. We need these things because we're at a huge disadvantage in the information war against the left. When they know that if you stand up against Trump and you get fired, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how, as long as you were standing up against Trump, you're going to get a book deal, speaking circuit, board seat, all all this great stuff because the left takes care of their soldiers. On the right, we're like, yeah, you know, go start a business, find a job. Sorry, your career's ruined. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why does your current climate change proposal involve phasing out nuclear energy when it currently accounts for 20% of all U.S. energy and 50% of our carbon-free energy? Okay. All right, and the answer is that right now, 
we do not know how to get rid of the nuclear waste um, that is out there. Waste that is going to be around for a very, very, very long time. Uh, as you know, the Congress thought about Yucca Mountain in Nevada. I don't believe that that is going to happen. So right now, all over the country, including my own state of Vermont, we have nuclear waste uh, alongside a plant that has since been shut down right by the Connecticut River. Not a good place for it. And all over this country, you have nuclear waste, which is stored in ways, in places that are not particularly safe. So I don't know how we can build more, more nuclear plants when we don't know how to get rid of the waste that we have. Uh, second of all, in terms of the construction of new nuclear plants, you may or may not know that they are far, far, far more expensive than investing in wind, solar, and other sustainable uh, energies. I just wanted to play this for you as a reminder that what I'm telling you about Bernie Sanders is true. He's not very smart. Doesn't know very much. Doesn't have a lot of knowledge about anything. He's just a demagogue. He, he spouts the same nonsense you'd hear from any self-described Marxist professor at any third-tier college in the country. It's just that he happens to be in the right place at the right time now for the rise in socialist sentiment in the Democratic Party. But he, he's not particularly good at this. He doesn't have some special skill. And I think it's important that everybody remembers that Bernie Sanders isn't a guy that you would turn to even to give you a good explanation of many of the policies that he now advocates for. Um, nuclear power is something that the left gets very touchy about because they used to be obsessed with how nuclear power was something that had to be opposed on environmental grounds. It's particularly true of the anti-nuclear power movement in the 1970s. It actually led to the beginning of what we now call the Black Bloc movement. There were these uh, Black Bloc protests about nuclear power in Germany in the 70s. And then you had all these environmentalists that latched on to the stories about how you know nuclear power, uh, nuclear meltdowns would happen, what are we going to do with the waste? It turns out that nuclear power is the safest, cleanest, best option for having the advanced economies we want to have and, and and does not have the CO2 emissions that other power has. But they don't want that. They want wind. They want renewable. And it's not efficient. Solar and wind are not going to power the economy uh, that we want to be living in. But it just also reminded me of, this is one of my favorites, is, you know, I, I hate recycling. I find it to be a little taste of tyranny every day. It's, it's incredibly stupid. Um, recycling is not good for the environment. They've, they, when they look at this honestly, it is in, very difficult to reprocess and, and clean products uh, to, you know, that, that you are recycling and, and put them back into. It's very bad. This is not a good, this is not a good thing. And in fact, a lot of what ends up happening, especially with plastics, when you think you're recycling plastics, we just ship our plastic to third world countries like China. I mean, not China's not a third world country, really, but we ship them to third world countries and places like China. But they don't care about where the plastic ends up. And that's how it gets back into the ocean. So we think we're recycling. We really just send it to these other places. And there's a story over the weekend about how when they look at really what goes on with plastic bag bans, which drive me insane. I mean, producer Mark, have you have you had the experience yet of of overloading a paper bag trying to get into the car, and just yes, the bottom just falls out, and you, now you feel like you look like an idiot, even though it's not your fault, and you're like, why can't I just have a plastic bag? You know that's happening March first in all of New York, right? <sighs> I know. Yeah, 
This is why I'm talking about it right now. Okay, I'm just no, no, but I, but I, I understand. But I'm just channeling my yeah. frustration here. Buy some reusable bags, Buck. At how unbelievably stupid this is going to be. Um, it's let, let me explain why. Uh, it turns out, uh, it, it turns out that plastic bags are incredibly lightweight, versatile, reusable, and when you look at the transportation cost and the environmental cost of paper bags, for example, there is very clear evidence that they are, in fact, worse for the environment. Here's a piece in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago. Why do politicians want to take our plastic bags and straws away? This moral panic is intensifying, even as evidence mounts that banning plastic is both a waste of money and harmful to the environment. If you want to protect dolphins and sea turtles, you should take special care to place your plastic uh, uh, plastic in the trash, not the recycling bin. During the 1970s, environmentalists wanted to restrict the use of plastic because it was made from petroleum. When the energy crisis abated, they denounced plastic for not being biodegradable in landfills. They blamed it for littering the landscape, clogging sewer drains, and global warming. Plastic from our throwaway society was killing vast numbers of, th- of sea creatures, according to a 2017 BBC documentary series. The series prompted Queen Elizabeth II to ban plastic straws and bottles from the royal estates, and it galvanized so many other leaders that Greens celebrate what they call the Blue Planet Effect, named for the series. More than 100 countries now restrict single-use plastic bags, and Pope Francis has called for global regulation of plastic. Popular misconceptions have sustained the plastic panic. Environmentalists frequently claim that 80% of plastic in the oceans come from land-based sources, but a team of scientists from four continents reported in 2018 that more than half the plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch comes from fishing boats, mostly discarded nets and other gear. More than 80% of the plastic bottles that wash up on the shores of Inaccessible Island, an uninhabited extinct volcano in the South Atlantic, originated in China. Of the plastic carried into oceans by rivers, a 2017 study in Nature Communications estimated 86% comes from Asia and virtually all the rest from Africa and South America. Some plastic in America is littered on beaches and streets, but researchers have found that laws restricting plastic bags have, do not reduce litter. The resources wasted on these anti-plastic campaigns would be better spent on programs to discourage all kinds of littering. Um, I mean, it just goes on. It goes on and on. It's just a horrible idea. It's stupid. I mean, I've been dealing with it whenever I go to California. I'll be in California this weekend. Uh, It's so dumb. And yet people, it's just virtue signaling. It takes over this part of the brain. People can't think for themselves anymore. They're incapable of looking at what's really going on. And instead, they replace it with what they wish was going on because it makes them feel good. This piece continues, quote, single-use plastic bags aren't the worst environmental choice at the supermarket. They're the best. High-density polyethylene bags are a marvel of economic engineering and environmental efficiency. They're cheap, convenient, waterproof, strong enough to hold groceries, but thin and light enough to make make and transport using scant energy, water, or other resources. Though they're called single-use, most people reuse them often as trash can liners. I do that. When governments ban them, Consumers buy thicker substitutes with a bigger carbon footprint. Once discarded, they take up little room in landfills. That they aren't biodegradable is a plus because they don't release greenhouse gases like decomposing paper and cotton bags. 
The plastic bag's tiny quantity of carbon extracted from natural gas goes back underground where it can be safely sequestered from the atmosphere and ocean in a modern landfill with sturdy lining. Plastic, I mean, plastic bands are a modern version of medieval sumptuary laws, which forbade merchants and other commoners from wearing clothes or using products that offended the sensibilities of aristocrats and clergymen. Green activists have the power to impose their preferences now that environmentalism is essentially the state religion in progressive strongholds. This is by this guy, Tierney, who's the uh, editor of City Journal for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to we have a plastic ban coming into effect here in New York City. Um, you know, these uh, these different uh, progressive strongholds, you cannot penetrate their environmentalist nonsense with reality. What? But you know what's worse than the bags? What? The straws. Oh, the straws. Is, I that's can't insane. stand paper straws. Paper straws are disgusting. I actually prefer reusable bags because they hold more. I don't have to carry as many bags. That's not an environmental thing. Yeah, but you got to carry it with preference. you, which, you know, sometimes you want to go to the store, you don't have a bag on you. Uh, you don't have a car, so I guess right. that's Yeah, the exactly. It's a different deal. But the straws, I, if somebody puts a paper straw on my drink, I'm done. I don't go to yeah, that I place lose my ever mind. again. Yeah. I, but the thing is, they're doing this, and they're not, it doesn't even do what they think it's going to do. All it does is annoy everybody. Yes. This is like the the liberal mentality is now, if it makes them feel good to annoy you and has no other purpose, they will use state power and coercion to do that. Drives me insane. Yeah, plastic uh, bags to be banned in New York, second statewide ban. I mean, this is is idiocy. Idiocy. You know, recycling is dumb, all this stuff. You know, you want people to not litter. Which, by the way, there's some cultural things about littering. Like some cultures are more likely to litter; they litter a lot, and others don't. And you know, it's, you go to more developed countries, and there's a lot less littering. I mean, there's a whole. The if you want to know how uh, economically developed a, society, a country is, all you have to do is see how they handle their trash, and you pretty much know. If you know how they handle refuse, you you know how uh, advanced the country is. You know, you're not going to see a lot of trash all over the streets of Tokyo, even though it's an incredibly dense urban area, you will see a lot of trash in in other parts of the world where median wages are far lower and there's far less economic development. You know, in the Middle East, in some some of those cities, you'll see trash all over the I mean, you go to some parts of Cairo, there's trash everywhere. So, I mean, just, just for an example here, I, I'm annoyed to see that New York is going to be following California's footsteps, but you know, maybe New Yorkers just have to get some good doses of liberalism to wake up. I don't know, though. They, they ne- we never learn the lesson here. I mean, those of you that don't live in, in progressive strongholds, you're so lucky. Because by the time it's clear that the policies they're implementing are bad and are damaging, it's too late. And, you know, people have already fled. And I mean, New York is hemorrhaging people to Florida right now just because of the changes in the taxes. A plastic bag, uh, pl- plastic bag, sorry. <laughs> New York, plastic bag, ban it. Go out, hang with Producer Mark and Ronkonkoma, Patchogue, one of those places, you know what I mean? What is your? What is the favorite of the South Shore destinations? In general? Yeah. I mean, Long Beach, because I Long live beach. there and there's a beach. That sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's no beach in Ronkonkoma, right? I just like to uh, say that one. There might be one. Is there one? Oh, no, that, that's on the North Shore. What so about Jericho? No, there's no beach there. No beach in Jericho, no. right? Yeah. I eh. like Jericho, of all the fun ones. Yeah, I don't know. It's very long. I'm trying to think of the most Long Island, Long Island place. Jericho's got to be high on the list. 
No, no, Ronkonkoma is up there. Ron Babylon. Conkham. Babylon. Uh-huh. That, uh, we used to have people who would come visit the city on the weekends when I was in high school from Babylon, where it was like, ah, yes, the yeah. Babylon crew is here. You're just naming routes on the Long Island Railroad right Yeah, now, but this basically. is very, we, we refer to this as bridge and tunnel back in the day. People mm. coming in the city from outside uh, of the five boroughs. And Babylon were frequent frequent visitors. Yeah, and this is long. That's why I know them from taking the train out yes. to the uh, out east, as they say, out east where there's You're such the, a Manhattanite. Yeah, such a that, that's a very Manhattan thing. Going out east for me, out east is like Montauk or like all the way on the end of yeah. Long Montauk's Island. great. Montauk's very yeah. trendy now, though, as you probably know wine country, of course. Yeah, yeah. North Shore of Long Island's very nice. So anyway, man, they're gonna have a plastic ban here, and so Long Island's gonna be affected by this. Is what I'm thinking about. I mean, every all over New York State, we got this plastic bag ban in effect. It's stupid. It's counterproductive. But uh, libs don't care. If it makes them feel good, they will ram their stupidity down your throat and do it with a paper straw that disintegrates within like two minutes of being in your drink. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I haven't talked to you much about coronavirus today. Um, I've seen now we got 80,000 confirmed cases. Stock market did not have some huge rebound today after a 3% drop in the, what was it, the S&P yesterday. Um, so it's uh, it's concerning. And there are going to be, uh, there's now, a, I think, a consensus emerging that it is going to hit the United States. But we have a an, an advanced health system. The fatality rate is 2%, which is a lot higher than the flu. The flu is something like 0.01%. Um, but we, we are going to get hit with coronavirus. I don't know. There's something... I, I don't have... This isn't a completely formulated theory yet, but I, I'm getting, it's just getting a feeling. You know, you have this rise of socialism in Sanders, and now you've got this coronavirus. Something Something's going to happen here, meaning that there's going to be some big change in our perception of what's going on in the country and I'm I'm a little worried about how this could how this could evolve to help the Democrats in the fall. You know, the economy might hit a real slowdown, and all of a sudden we start hearing about how Trump isn't such a good steward. Of the, even though it'll be the result of a, it looks like it would be the result of a disease of a virus that is spreading all over the world. Um, this is where I start to see, this is where you start to feel like there's a. A fat tail incident, which is one way of referring to it, or a black swan incident, where that's the uh, low probability, high impact scenario. That to me seems like it's possible now that we're entering this phase of what's going to be a. It is going to be a global pandemic. Um, it has already killed a lot more people than SARS did. Uh, it's the incubation rates on coronavirus. I don't, I don't have a lot of good news here on this right now. I don't have good news to share. The incubation rates on it are longer than thought. There are some people that are going now for almost 30 days before they show symptoms, which means that during that period, you are still possibly contagious. So you don't know you you know you could not know that you have coronavirus and be spreading it to people, and it won't be until th- two or three weeks goes by before you start to actually show symptoms. Um, there are much more dangerous strains of virus out there, much more dangerous influenzas for, influenzas, for example, that have really high fatality rates. But the thing about those influenzas is that they tend not to be easily spread because the symptoms set on very quickly and people are not interacting with a lot of other people and basically fighting for their own fighting for their own lives very quickly. Uh, this, the way that coronavirus uh, incubates 
and the way that it is spread means that the likelihood of this thing becoming a disease that we all have to be at least aware of, even in this country, I think is very, very high. I will also say, though, I remember I was in Puerto Rico when Zika was considered a huge concern, and there were these maps the CDC put out about how Zika was going to spread everywhere, and it was, you know, going to be, and if, if pregnant women were terrified of it and all this stuff. Now, you don't even hear, you don't even hear about Zika anymore. I remember I read a CDC analysis before I went to Puerto Rico when I was there. Puerto Rico is one of the one of the islands that was worst hit by it. Uh, that up to 50% of the Caribbean and like the northern half of South America and a big chunk of the southern United States, uh, up to 50%, 40 or 50% of people might be infected with Zika within, you know, a few years' time. And turned out, now Zika wasn't killing people. The big fear about Zika was that it was going to cause uh, microcephaly, which is a super small, essentially creates a super small head. Uh, and it's a terrible birth defect. <laughs> That was, and, it, and the people saw photos of it, and you know they were very, very concerned about it, understandably. But you don't even really hear about Zika anymore. I remember when West Nile virus was going to be something that you know you'd just be walking around the park in some city in the U.S. and you get West Nile virus from mosquito bite. You know there have been these moments where we're all supposed to be really, really scared. Um, I'm not at the I'm not at the panic button phase of coronavirus, but I am at the it's going to hit the United States. We're going to have, in my opinion, we're going to have corona spreading through U.S. cities here within within a month or two. And that's going to shake a lot. First of all, it's scary, right? It's scary for people, even with a 2% fatality rate. Um, that's, that's higher than a lot of other things that we've gotten used to having in the environment. How does this also play politically, though? I mean, this will have pandemics have political implications. Make no mistake about it. Uh, you know, you get socialists promising government health care. You get the government supposed to protect us. I, I'm worried about this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to email us, uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And please do uh, pass the buck. Tell somebody when you get a chance about the Buck Sexton show, listen on Apple Podcasts or in the on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, we are growing every month in the digital realm as well as in the terrestrial radio realm. And that's all because of you and your word of mouth. So please, please do tell somebody it's the single biggest favor, the single biggest solid you can do if you believe in what we do here in the Freedom Hut is to get somebody new to start listening to the show. Elena writes in, hey, Buck, thanks for all you do. I think I've told you before that I live in Albania. I teach English using the Bible. One of my students has said that he'd like to get an American history book to read because he just wants to know more about America's history. Could you recommend a title that I could get for him that would not be a liberal treatise and would give him what he wants to know? P.S. He's already read The Residence. Um, hmm. An American history book to read to know about American history. I mean, I, I honestly can't think off the top of my head of it, a really good overview of U.S. history that's in one book. I can think of different periods of history where there are good books. But I, I can't think of 
one book that covers all that. So let me get back to you on that, Elena. I wish I, I wish I had a better um, a better answer for you on this. Oh man, I also slipped on my neck wrong last night. It's brutal. Whew, you got to do a radio show for three hours. Your neck hurts. Sucks. Um, Bill. Hey, Buck, I haven't heard you discuss the fact that China manufactures the majority of our pharmaceuticals. It seems to me that with uh, seems to me that with them in a position to control our most basic antibiotics, we could be greatly hurt as a nation, especially with a possible coronavirus pandemic. What are your thoughts? Well, Bill, antibiotics don't do anything against viruses. They only do things against bacteria. So it's not going to mean anything that they manufacture antibiotics if, in fact, there was a vaccine um, that had to be manufactured. I'd wonder where that would be done. I think that in the past, for example, the flu vaccine, some of the, I think we got it from a company in Switzerland. Um, is it uh, AbV or something? I forget. But anyway, um, there's some big pharmaceutical companies that are not based in China that do some of this stuff too. Uh, right now, though, we really do need a, at least a, a treatment protocol to bring down the fatality rate. That would be really helpful because a 2% fatality rate doesn't sound that bad until you realize that a few hundred thousand people getting infected means a few thousand people are dying of this disease. And that's that's very that's a, that's a lot of casualties for us today. That's a lot of very tragic uh, circumstances occurring. So, uh, yeah, I, I just wish the scientific community would stop, you know, stop messing around with the climate change garbage and focus in on real stuff like this. Stop telling us to ban plastic bags, too. Uh, let's see here. Andy. Hi, Buck. You rock. Andy, thank you. You rock, too. I do want to play devil's advocate here. You mentioned a couple of days ago that Bernie voted, uh, Bernie voters voted for Trump, possibly costing what happened the election. I looked at some of the states that Trump lost by just a couple percentage points, and the difference there was Gary Johnson. I have to think if he wasn't in the race, a decent majority of his votes would have gone to Trump. Assuming this is correct, if Johnson wasn't in, Trump would have won four or five more states. I haven't looked. I've only looked at the Bernie numbers um, uh, in those states where there were Bernie was a write-in. I have not looked at the Gary Johnson numbers. So, if you have done that analysis, I would defer to you. Assuming your numbers are correct, that certainly seems uh, possible. So, good, uh, good on you for doing the work, doing the homework yourself. I do appreciate it, Michelle. Hey, Buck. I'm a new listener and a conservative millennial. Love your show so much. I listen to the shows in reverse chronological order. When you start selling Freedom Hut t-shirts, please use TriBlend. What is that, producer? What's TriBlend? I believe it's like a polyester cotton blend. Oh, okay. So when we get our gear... When we get our gear up and running, maybe we can do that. We'll have plenty of options available, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. When we actually get around to it. We'll get, you know, we do everything. We just, it's just, look, it's just me and producer market here, exactly. man. We're, we're like a two-man army. That's that's really what's going on here. You know, we got producer Nick sometimes gives us a little close air support. You know, he comes in, but he's not here located with us. He's like the sniper who's set up in a, in a, in a sniper's nest that can help us out, but we're kicking in the doors by ourselves. Um, David, hey, Bucking team. I listen to your radio broadcast on my way home from work. And hearing of California's attitude toward federal law a few nights ago, a solution occurred to me. I'm not sure if it's legally possible, but could President Trump issue executive orders suspending all federal aid to California until they comply with federal law? I believe there is precedent for this. If so, 
That would certainly alter the dialogue and force California into compliance with laws they agreed to support as a condition of receiving aid. Almost poetic in its elegance, is it not? I enjoy the show and learn a lot from it. It has a different angle of attack from other talk shows, and that's refreshing. You folks keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. I haven't been listening long, but I'll say it anyway. Shields high! David, welcome, man. Great to have you as part of Team Buck. Thank you so much for your note, and uh, we appreciate all the kind words. As for using federal dollars to force compliance, um, that can be tricky. That's something that would certainly go through the courts. You know, the Obama administration, for example, even when Obamacare was upheld the first time, the Obama administration um, was not able to get the part of Obamacare that would have said to states, you either expand your Medicaid roles, which states have to pay into as well as the federal government, or we're going to pull all federal funding. The Supreme Court even the same Supreme Court breakdown that upheld Obamacare said that that degree of federal coercion of the states was too much. Uh, John, I support the First Amendment 100 percent, and I think any infringement is an erosion of our republic. But for a thought exercise, what if it was illegal for corporations to own news organizations and the news organizations... Um, had to operate all on their own without the backing of billion-dollar media conglomerates. Do you think reporters would take more accountability and even act as true journalists if they actually had to tell the truth to thrive rather than pander and read the daily DNC talking points? Um, this wouldn't be an infringement on the first, but a regulation on the business model. What are some other ways you think we, the people of the feds, could take action against the media for their countless lies that doesn't infringe on the first? John, um, no, I don't think provi- I don't think stopping corporate ownership of media corporations would make media corporations more honest, because the reason that media corporations engage in advocacy under the guise of journalism is because they are ideologically predisposed to do that. They're going with what they themselves believe anyway, and also their audiences are uh, very much of that left-wing mindset, and so they're pandering to their audience. So they're pandering to their own sensibility and to their audiences, something that I think uh, you will continue to see happening no matter what kind of regulations we try to put in place. David writes, Buck, uh-oh. Ah, producer Mark. Got some news for you there, chief. Buck, I totally agree with you about the Avenger movies. Some of them were okay, but Endgame was awful. They crammed in way too many cliche storylines. Ugh. Nothing I hate more than time loss sitting through a bad movie. I also agree with you about movies staying around 90 minutes. Shields high. What do you got to say now, producer Mark, huh? Well, first of all, that is a horrible opinion. Um, (laughs) One listener down. Here we go. Endgame is one of the few movies that I got like an actual emotional, like I didn't cry or anything, but I got, got an actual reaction out of me. Well, you did. Conv- I didn't realize there were like ten of them. So you've convinced me. I'm actually going to go back to the yeah. very. What is the first one? I, I believe it's the first Iron Man. And so then, what comes after that? Uh, maybe the Avengers. I don't know about the original them, like, Avengers the original, movie. Yes, I if think I saw Google that one. It, there is a way to watch in chronological order or in way they were released order. Is, some of them is go Thor back. Ragnarok a part of this, or is that yes. a different thing? It Thor is. Ragnarok is a part of it. Yeah, because that I Captain saw. Captain Marvel's a part of it. 
the Doctor Thor Ragnarok Strange. thing was actually kind of entertaining. I kind of yeah. liked that. Oh, one. that you liked. Yeah, that I kind of liked. If you watch that them was, in order, they're very they're a little good. better. All right, David, producer Mark, and said, also on you. That's one listener out of hundreds of thousands. Yeah, that's true, but yeah. it's one, and I think I think we're about. I want to say ten to one. It might be more like fifty to one in favor of Avengers versus against. But at least I'm not alone. Yeah, at there's least. a there's a couple of you that are in the minority. There's a, there's a couple of us wrong. weirdos out there that yeah. don't like the Avengers. All right, that's fair enough. Well, David, you and producer Mark can pick a place to fight after school. Uh, I don't use violence, Buck. That's true. Producer Mark fights with his mind. I do. TJ, Buck, I'd hate to be a catastrophist, but I can't help but notice the Dow fell a thousand points on the opening day after the realization that Bernie would be the Democrat nominee. They say it's because of the coronavirus, but I'm skeptical of that reasoning. Regardless of whether the Dow fell, I can't help but wonder what Bernie will do to the market confidence by being by just being the nominee, not even by being elected president. Most conservatives will admit that Trump will not stand much of a chance if the market tanks before November. So how does Trump keep market confidence high with the inevitability of Bernie becoming a Democrat nominee? By the way, are the, this... This, don't tell anybody else I said that this, the smartest audience in talk radio listens to this show. I'm just going to say it. We got this. The Team Buck is the smartest. And I, oh, other audiences are going to yell at me. I don't care. Team Buck is the smartest audience on radio. Um, just listen to the, the stuff that people are writing in all the time. I'm like, that's an ex- that is an excellent point. Very well thought out and reasoned, sir or madam. Um, yeah, I think that Bernie Sanders does scare Wall Street, and he should. I think Bernie Sanders scares anybody who owns property and and he should uh anybody who has built up assets anybody who has worked very hard for whatever they have just understand that bernie sanders is not a friend to you continuing on with that prosperity bernie sanders is a concern that you should have and if he were to win you know it's funny they pretended that when trump won that the stock market would tank and it's been the exact opposite I'm here to tell you, if Bernie Sanders does win the presidential, I mean, first he has to win the primary, which is not in the bag yet. It's not done. But if Bernie Sanders wins the presidency, um, be prepared for a stock market crash the next day. I mean, be prepared for, you know, a 20 percent market correction. I really think that could happen. Just all of a sudden, all, you know, the, all the gains from the last year or two just erased. And maybe we even go into, you know, pre-Trump in the in the red in terms of what where the market has gone in the Trump era and then Bernie Sanders comes in because it's just it's wealth destroying government coming in and taking from people and inefficiently allocating capital and spending money on programs that don't work and taking money from people that are growing wealth and that are doing good things and that are providing services and and employing people it, the Bernie Sanders model is wealth destroying it does not. It does not make uh, the, the economy stronger in any way, and that's why it's it's such a concern and it should continue to be a concern. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, roll call continues here with Eric writing, and I hope you heard Adam Schiff's question: What is to stop a president from using the intelligence community to investigate political rivals? Sitting here waiting on GOP senators to challenge him on this response and believe we should hit him hard on this one. Yeah, they've already done that. I mean, the the most astonishing uh, presidential uh, political scandal of my lifetime. It's already happened. Democrats have already done it to us. They use the intelligence uh, community. They abused intelligence operations 
in order to spy on a presidential campaign. That is what happened. Um, but because we live in such a dishonest media environment, um, they refuse to make that. Well, they, they refuse to not only just agree that that's what happened, but to make any amends for it. Uh, let's see. We have next up here. Uh, okay, here it is. It seems that producer Mark is good, and I like him. Um, okay, thank you, Carla. <laughs> we we like producer Mark too. Uh, I don't even want to know what the rest of that message said, Buck. No, yeah, we bailed on it. All right. Yeah. No. Producer, hey, producer Mark can be a little grouchy sometimes, but he's my grouch. This is what happens when you go rogue, Buck. Yeah, I know. Oh. Steven, Buck, original Saturday Squad here, an Army vet, always doing my best to spread the word about the show and a bunch of my friends now follow. Thank you so much, Steven. As I always say, that's the single most helpful thing you can do. That and also check out our sponsors on the show. With our sponsors, remember, you're getting you're getting great products. I know the companies. I know the products of the people that are behind them. Um, you know Everything that I say that I use, I do use. I mean, every time I tell you that I, I believe in them, I do. Um, and, and it also, every time you're using our code and doing that, you're supporting this show. You're keeping this show on the air. Um, would like to see the return of the history deep dives, Lepanto and Dracula being my favorites. P.S., new one for you to use, Sancta Romney. Shields high. Well, Stephen, um, I would love to get back to the history show. It's going to be tough to do it in an election year because we're so busy, but at some point we'll get that going. We'll get that crack a lack, and I've certainly thought about it. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed Lepanto and Dracula. I, I do want to go back to those. Those were a lot of fun. Noah. Um, hey, Buck, it's been a few years since I quit following politics so closely. Uh, let's see what we get. Um, would it be at all possible for you to take a minute or two on the podcast and do a recap of the last four years just to give people like me some sort of timeline? That would be much appreciated. I hope you hear something on this. Thanks from a true Freedom Hut original squad, Noah. Noah, I don't know if I'll be able to do anytime soon a, a full four-year retrospective on what's happened in American politics, maybe at the end of this year after the election, but I appreciate you coming back into the hut. You are always welcome, and thank you very much for being here. Aaron, I hear you tried yoga. That is fantastic. After I left the United States Marine Corps, I went to school and enrolled in yoga with a friend, mostly to meet women, but to my surprise, it was a lifesaver. I had to do uh, I had to deal with some residual stuff from the Corps, and it helped a lot with that. However, I'm also a goalie in hockey, and it was amazing for flexibility. In the end, I took every yoga class I could. Keep doing it. Yeah, Aaron, I have been doing more yoga. Um, I am going to go back to it. I did feel very good. It hurts me a lot as I'm doing it, which probably means I need to do more of it because I'm very not flexible, and I sit here with a tremendously painful neck from being hunched over doing tech neck all the time. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to do more yoga for sure, and I'm glad, man. I mean, yeah, hey, if, if, if Aaron from the Marine Corps says yoga is good, producer Mark and I have to check it out. So that's what we got. All right, everybody, um, the show today, I hope you agree, has been fantastic. If not, tomorrow's will be fantastic, because it usually is. Please do pass the buck. Tell somebody about it. Uh, subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show podcast, even if you listen on, on your local radio affiliate. It's great to have more subscribers. You can listen on demand whenever you want. And we'll be back here, same time, same place, tomorrow in the hut. Shields high.